It's Friday, July 31st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. There's new evidence that COVID-19 can have lingering effects on your heart. A German study is showing that MRIs of people who have recovered from the coronavirus still had visual signs that the virus had an impact months after recovering. Patients showed signs of ongoing inflammation of the heart muscle. Erica Edwards, health and medical reporter to NBC News, joins us for how COVID-19 can linger in your heart. Next, household transmission is becoming an increasing worry as young people are infecting older family members in shared homes. Many young adults surged into bars and restaurants when things opened back up and are also among essential workers. And it was only a matter of time before they came in contact with family members living in multi-generational homes. Lenny Bernstein, health and medicine reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more. Finally, a weird science story. Scientists in Hungary accidentally created a new species of fish called a sturtle fish. It's a hybrid of the Russian sturgeon and American paddlefish. Approximately 100 sturtle fish remain alive today, but while they will be cared for, there are no plans to breed more. Daisy Hernandez, reporter at Popular Mechanics, joins us for how these new fish came to be. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Doctors in Germany, they took MRIs of these people's hearts two to three months after they were diagnosed, after they felt better. 78 of those people, a majority, still had signs on those MRIs that the virus had some kind of impact on their heart. Joining us now is Erica Edwards, health and medical reporter at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Erica. Hi, nice to be here. I wanted to talk about coronavirus and how it affects the body. We've been hearing for a long time all the different ways. It's not just a respiratory disease. It seems to be a vascular disease also affecting blood vessels. And there was two studies that came out recently about how COVID-19 can damage the heart and how that damage can linger for some months even after people recover. Erica, tell us a little bit about that. You're exactly right. So, you know, very early on, this was thought to be just a respiratory disease. But we've learned, well, I say we, but it's actually the doctors and the nurses on the front lines. They've learned so much about how COVID-19 can impact the body in so many ways. You know, it's been six months since that first case was diagnosed in Washington State here in the U.S. So now they've learned that it can also impact the body in other ways, right? So there were two studies that came out this week that you referred to from Germany. They were published Tuesday in the journal JAMA um, Cardiology, showing that the virus can actually linger in the heart for months, even when people feel like they've, they've recovered. They're not necessarily in the hospital. They're otherwise healthy adults in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. So what happened was, Doctors in Germany, they took MRIs of these people's hearts two to three months after they were diagnosed, after they felt better. 78 of those people, a majority, still had signs on those MRIs that the virus had some kind of impact on their heart. 60 of those people had signs of inflammation of their heart muscle. Now, when we're talking about the heart muscle, it's more about, like, if you're thinking about a home, you're thinking about the framing. You think about a computer, it's, it's the mainframe. It's what sort of holds all of those heart cells together. And that's where they were seeing the inflammation. Now, it didn't necessarily translate into any ongoing symptoms. 
And it's still unknown what that kind of inflammation, what those signs might mean long term. Clearly, we're still only six months into this pandemic. But once you have some sort of heart damage, there is the potential for further damage down the line. Unfortunately, we still don't know what that damage is, Oscar. And one of the other interesting things that they found out in that study was that it didn't really matter the seriousness of the illness. Some people had been hospitalized with COVID-19. Others were able to recover at home completely. They ran the whole course of it at home. So it didn't really matter how bad you had it. A lot of people were still getting heart damage. Now, there was another study also from Germany. They were looking at autopsies, unfortunately, of people who were um, older. They died of COVID-19. They were all in their 80s. They found evidence of the virus in the heart tissue of 24 out of those 39 patients. And in a few, in some of them, the virus was actually replicating in that heart tissue. So these are all pointing to ways that seem to suggest that the virus is somehow making its way into the heart. Again, what's a little unsettling is that doctors still really don't know all what that means. Right. I mean, yeah, as you mentioned, just it's affecting the entire body from your head neurologically throughout the body, vascularly and all the way, you know, down to your toes. Right. That's how you get the symptom COVID toe. So uh, still have to learn Mm -hmm. a lot more about this. Before we go, I wanted to bring up another article you wrote about young children and the spread of COVID-19. Obviously, there's a lot of concern about kids going back to school in the fall. I know a lot of school districts are still doing the hybrid learning, the distance learning thing, but there are some that are saying they're going forward with it. And we know that kids are spared the most severe effects of COVID-19, but we're finding out still that they can get the virus and they still can transmit the virus. So no one is going to deny that a child of any age or an adult of any age isn't immune to COVID-19 and that they can't spread the virus, right? But, but what, exactly what you were just saying, So far, it appears that kids in general aren't the main drivers of this virus, like they are, say, for the flu. We know that, you know, when there's a flu outbreak, you got to close the schools down. The kids are really the main drivers of flu. It's a little different with COVID-19. But the study that you're referring to compared the nasal swab of kids under age five to older kids and adults, and they found that those young kids even as young as under a month old, can carry just as much of that coronavirus in their noses as those older children and adults. Now, again, what does that mean? We don't know that that means exactly that those young kids are able, kids are able to spread um, the virus as easily as adults, but it does raise a lot of questions as we are considering whether to open schools. And if you open schools, how do you do it safely? Unfortunately, it's still a lot of unknowns. Yeah, I mean, there's a huge concern for teachers and other administrators, older people that are working with the kids. We just did a story on the podcast about, you know, household transmission is a big thing. Younger people are going out in the world, going home, and then infecting their older family members. And this could possibly be very similar, where the kids really aren't experiencing it that much, but then they could pass it on to a teacher or another administrator. So just as you said, a lot of questions still remain on this and who knows how it will play out, but we're going to have to keep watching for it. Erica Edwards, health and medical reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. 
younger people tend to get infected without symptoms much more often than older people. Then if they are living in one of these multi-generational homes and they bring the virus home, they then pass it on to people who are much more vulnerable to the effects of COVID-19. Joining us now is Lenny Bernstein, health and medicine reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Lenny. My pleasure. We keep seeing caseloads rise for coronavirus. Death tolls are going up in coronavirus hotspots. And once again, we're starting to look at the younger people. This story you focused on was about household transmission and about how young people are infecting older family members in shared homes, multi-generational homes, things like that. Lenny, tell us a little bit about it. Epidemiologists have been warning about this for quite a while since some of the states reopened about two months ago, and younger adults started returning to bars and restaurants. And what the experts have been pointing out is that a lot of families in this country are multi-generational, but two or three generations share the same household. Now, why is that a problem? Because younger people tend to get infected without symptoms much more often than older people. Then if they are living in one of these multi-generational homes and they bring the virus home, They then pass it on to people who are much more vulnerable to the effects of COVID-19, who get more severe symptoms, who end up in the hospital, who end up in the ICU. And they warned about this at the beginning, and now they believe they're starting to see it happen. This is how I grew up. It's not the situation anymore, but when I was younger, I lived in a house with my grandma. It was my uncle, my mom. It was myself and my two siblings. So there was a lot of us in there, and uh, it would be ripe for something like this. You know, if one of us came down with it, my grandma could get it. So I can see all of this happening and I know how these households work. And going back to the younger people, generally these people that are more considered these essential workers, if they work in some of these low paying jobs, if they work at the supermarket, things like that. So they're constantly in and out of the house. Partying at the bars was one thing too, that was of concern, but even just in their normal day lives, they're out and about constantly. And then they come home, it's potential to spread it to family members. We can't blame it entirely on young kids being irresponsible or less responsible than we'd hope. Yes, adults in their 20s and 30s tend to socialize more, but you're absolutely correct. People have to go to work. There's no other way. People have jobs in retail and healthcare and other places that are going to put them out there with the public and at risk of infection. So it's not just entirely people being cavalier about the generations they live with. The other thing that we also ought to remember is that a certain number of young people have been forced back into their parents' homes by the fact that they no longer have work. So we're not condemning, you know, an entire generation of people here. Yeah, and the numbers are there. There's a record 64 million people. This is about 20% of the U.S. population that live in these homes with at least two adult generations or something where there's the grandparents and grandchildren under 25. So these households, there's a lot of them out there. And even just looking into the news, there was a couple of examples that we could also kind of point to on this. There was somebody in the president's cabinet, the national security advisor to the president. He just contracted COVID-19 and they were saying maybe he got it from his daughter. So these examples are popping up in a lot of places. The one that everybody has probably seen, it's been pretty viral. He is the woman who went on Facebook and posted a video about how she had begged her 21-year-old son not to let his guard down, to wear his mask, not to hang out in closed spaces with his friends if they were unmasked, to be aware of who around him was infected. Well, 
he got infected. He came home. He didn't tell them for a few days. And, you know, he sounds like a really good kid. And she wasn't blaming him. She wasn't guilting him. But by the time he made them aware that he had been exposed, their whole family, their whole household was affected. And unfortunately, his father, who's only 42, ended up in the ICU and ended up on a ventilator for 18 days. So this is no joke. You have to think about the impact on yourself and then the impact on anybody else you're going to come in contact with. It's paramount that everybody wear the mask, do all that stuff. And people say, well, I'm not going to get sick. But this is exactly the story of why it's important that you do those things so you don't infect your family members and other loved ones. And it's tough. You know, there's been this notion of let's reopen the economies. The most at risk can stay home and the others can go out and go to work. And trends like this kind of throw a wrench in it and all the more to be diligent in following the proper guidelines, social distancing and mask wearing and all that. That philosophy just is not going to work in our society. There is no way, short of an older person living in long-term care or by themselves, that they are not going to mix with other generations. It just doesn't work in our society. It was even worse in Italy. One of the reasons that so many elderly folks died there is that they have this huge percentage of their population living in multi-generational households. It's just custom. Here, while we may have only 20%, it's higher in ethnic communities. It's higher in the um, Latino and Asian and black communities than it is in the white communities. And people just mix. So the idea that we will shelter the vulnerable, you know, in this completely impermeable, protective bubble is really not going to work. Lenny Bernstein, health and medicine reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Always my pleasure. So what happens is you need sperm to activate the egg to begin embryo development, but the sperm doesn't pass down any paternal DNA. So essentially what you end up with is an offspring that has 100% maternal DNA and is essentially a clone of the mother. Joining us now is Daisy Hernandez, reporter at Popular Mechanics. Thanks for joining us, Daisy. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. I have kind of a weird science story. Scientists created a new kind of fish. This was an accident. And unfortunately, we might not see this species of fish last much longer. Scientists created a hybrid between the Russian sturgeon and an American paddlefish. Daisy, tell, mm-hmm. us, tell us how this all happened. Right off the bat, I got pitched this story. I thought it was really awesome, especially since you get to kind of dive into the science with the published piece on genes, the journal. So one of the most interesting things about this hybridization between the sturgeon and the American paddlefish is that it was completely accidental. Like you said, the scientists were not actively trying to create a hybrid of these fish. And one of the reasons that they were working in the lab to create more Russian sturgeon was because those fish, not entirely, but almost single-handedly support the caviar industry. So overfishing has caused a lot of problems, especially because roe, the Russian sturgeon roe is very valuable. So this was a way for scientists to try to create more Russian sturgeon in a lab. And the way they tried to do it was via this gnarly process called gynogenesis. And gynogenesis is super interesting. So it's a type of parthenogenesis in which reproduction occurs, but the sperm doesn't fertilize the egg. 
So what happens is you need sperm to activate the egg to begin embryo development, but the sperm doesn't pass down any paternal DNA. So essentially what you end up with is an offspring that has 100% maternal DNA and is essentially a clone of the mother. I mean, that in and of itself is incredible and super fascinating. It's a crazy process from what I was reading. So what happened was they were using the sperm from the American paddlefish to induce the process in the Russian sturgeon. But by Mm -hmm. accident, they didn't know it was going to happen. They thought that these two fish were so different that the hybridization could never occur. But the sperm ended up fertilizing the egg. You know, as they say, nature finds a way. And then they ended up having all these hundreds of fish be born. Yes. And, yeah, and, so just totally unbel- like almost unbelievable, you know, something out of like a sci-fi story. It's almost too weird to be true, but as they say, truth is stranger than right. fiction oftentimes. And what did they look like? Because it ran the gamut also. Some of them resembled the sturgeon more. Some resembled kind of both of them. They look like a true hybrid. They all right, look different. Right, right. So again, like just mind-blowing. So some of the offspring, some of these hybrids, the sturtlefish as they're called, Some of them appear very sturgeon-like, and some of them are very paddlefish-like. So some of them have not the full, I don't know if people are familiar, but American paddlefish have that. They're known for their paddle-like snout. It extends pretty far out, and it looks just like a paddle, like an oar maybe that you might use for canoeing. So some of the fish have that paddlefish Now, it's not as long as as purebred American paddlefish, but some of them have the more pointed sturgeon snout with the little whiskers that come down the bottom. And all of them had those bony protrusions along their spine on the dorsal side. Interestingly, too, so the paddlefish feeds on zooplankton, so just like whatever little particles kind of manages to filter feed on through the teeth, kind of like baleen whales. So interestingly, the hybrids are all carnivores like the sturgeon. Not all of them are a 50-50 split in appearance. Some of them, like I said, they look a lot like sturgeon. Some of them are closer to 50-50 between both fish, and some of them look a lot more like the American paddlefish. As you mentioned, this is just a crazy science story, and I'm looking at some of the pictures, and they do all look kind of different. But, yeah. they, but they have those similarities. But here's the sad part about it. Like with other of these man-made hybrids, things like the ligers or mules or whatever, they think that they can't reproduce on their own. So they're not worth it. As you mentioned, they were doing this whole thing to get more caviar so they can mm-hmm. uh, kind of repopulate the Russian sturgeon population. So there's only about 100 of these sturtle fish left, and they have no plan to reproduce these again. So this species, this man-made species that came up in a flash is going to be going away pretty soon. Yeah, so we don't know. There's no definitive lifespan for these guys, for the hybrids. And I guess fortunately for native species, they won't be released into the water because we're not sure how they would interact, if it would be a threat to other fish. So this is kind of like, I mean, it is a once in a lifetime thing where this entirely new species that happened by accident, nobody was expecting, nobody was trying for, is here for a short time and it's going to be gone. And again, we don't know if they're going to, if they'll endure for a year, if they'll be around for a few years, if it'll be a couple of months. Daisy Hernandez, reporter at Popular Mechanics. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is your Daily Dive.